1893, an uh, English poet named Francis Thompson published his most famous work. It was an autobiographical poem about God's relentless pursuit of him as he looked back over his life. And Francis had lived a, a hard life. He wanted to be a, a priest from an early age, but was rejected. He then tried to follow in his father's footsteps and his father's desire for him and become a, a physician, but he failed out of medical school. So he was so distraught by all of this that by the time his poetic skills, his writing skills were discovered, he was actually homeless on the streets of London and was addicted to opium. His life was essentially over in his own eyes. And by God's grace, a friend intervened and arranged for Francis Thompson to spend an extended period of time away from London at a monastery where he could recover and receive both physical and spiritual and mental care. And as his body and his mind began to heal, and as he began kicking this addiction, he, he started reading uh, the Psalms and the Gospels. And he started reflecting on his life in light of God's Word. And as he reflected this illustration, this, this vision of what God has done in his life came to mind. And it became the, the title of his famous poem. He called the poem, The Hound of Heaven. Which became his most famous work. In fact, I don't know anything else written by Francis Thompson, but it influenced the likes of G.K. Chesterton and J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And that illustration of God as the hound of heaven pursuing sinners has been used since then. And the poem begins, he says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. And for 182 lines, by the way, it's not an easy poem to read. I'll just say that, right? But for 182 lines, he goes on and describes all of the ways he tried to ignore God. He tried to push God aside. He tried to reject his sin from all those years ago, but to no avail. Because God, like a hound on the hunt, was pursuing him all the way. Until finally, as Thompson declares at the end of the poem, in full surrender, I am he whom thou seekest. And I think one of the reasons this poem has endured and has really become a classic is because how relatable that illustration is to the story of every single Christian. Right? We, can, we can go around this room and hear your stories and, and you can talk about all of the different ways as you look back on your life, how God pursued you to save you by his grace. Ways that he's worked to, to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we say, God, we're the one that you seekest. We see this reality not, in, not only in our own lives, but also in the Bible. Right? Think of the, the stories of the hound of heaven pursuing sinners. Think of, think of Jonah, right? Trying to run from God's call. God tells him to go to Nineveh. He tries to go to Tarshish. Yet God pursues him. Or think of the persecutor, Paul, who opposes the kingdom of God in full force until the hound of heaven zeroes in on the road of Damascus. Or think of the, the prodigal son who tries to squander away everything until he's drawn back to the loving arms of the father. 
We see it everywhere. And we see it in our passage this morning. In this story of Joseph and in particular his brothers. We see the hound of heaven on the hunt. Only here, it's not one person like Francis Thompson or you or me or the Apostle Paul. Here, it's an entire family. And specifically, it's the brothers of Joseph. It's been over 20 years since they've sinned against Joseph and their father Jacob by selling Joseph into slavery and lying about his fate. And God has begun, as we saw last week, to confront them head on with their sinfulness. They're starting to feel the weight of conviction. Last week in chapter 42, we saw that they confess guilt. They feel this sense of guilt for what they've done. They're anxious and fearful. They're, they're wondering now, has God, has our past caught up with us? Will God judge us at the hands of this Egyptian governor, who they don't know is their brother, for what we did to Joseph 20 plus years ago? That's the question. We can relate to that question as well, can't we? When we experience conviction of sin, when we feel guilt and shame for what we've done, the, the question is, will God punish me? When, I, when I'm fearful of just judgment, will he drop the hammer of his righteousness and justice and give me what I deserve? That's the question the brothers are asking. And the surprisingly good news of Genesis 43 and of the gospel and of the entirety of Scripture is that our sin is met with God's amazing grace. God pursues sinful people, not ultimately to destroy them, but to give mercy, grace, and favor. That's what's happening in Genesis 43. And so as we walk through this passage, we want to see, see that in three ways. There's really three scenes here, three different places, three different uh, people who speak this message to these brothers. First, we see the conviction of sin is met with mercy. And Jacob speaks a word of mercy to these brothers. Second, we see fear of judgment is met with peace. And that's where the passage, we, the portion we read, where the steward of Joseph's house speaks a message of peace to these brothers. And then third and finally, we see an attempt to appease is met with favor. And that favor comes from Joseph himself. So as we walk through this this morning, we'll see as this family needs the mercy, peace, and favor of their brother Joseph, so we find mercy, peace, and favor in the, greatest, the greater Joseph, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's jump in. Number one, first we see conviction of sin is met with mercy. Now we didn't read this portion, so let me read to you the first part of this chapter. Verse one says, now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from the land, from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. It's Benjamin. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, Jacob said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know 
that he would say, bring your brother down. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. Both we and you, and also our little ones, I will be a pledge of, of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So we don't know how long it's been since the first visit to Egypt, chapter 42 last week, where they see Joseph for the first time, though they don't know it's him, to this visit. We don't know the gap, but we do know that the food has run out and they're still in the middle of the famine. So Jacob says, hey guys, you've got to go back and you've got to get more food. Right, that's the practical thing that's happening. But what's really happening is God's, it's God's providential way of bringing these brothers back to Egypt for the second time so they can see Joseph again. And as Jacob and his sons start planning and discussing this second return and what that would look like, notice this, Moses, the author, is careful to show us that every aspect of this trip confronts the brothers with their past sin against Joseph over 20 years ago. You see those connections? First, they have to go back to Egypt. Right? They can't get away from this place, can they? They sold their brother to merchants who were on their way to Egypt. They had to go back to Egypt the first time when the famine began. And now, it seems like as things are settling in, they've got to go back again to this geographical reminder of their sin against Joseph. Second, Jacob's concern for Benjamin... His beloved son, the, the youngest son, would have reminded the brothers of their sin against Joseph. Remember what Joseph said to them in chapter 42. Don't come back unless you bring your youngest brother, Benjamin, which would have been Joseph's full biological brother, right? the son of his mother. And this devastates Jacob, who loves Benjamin more than all of the rest, just as he loved Joseph more than all of the rest. That would have triggered their memory to their mistreatment of their father's favorite, Joseph. God's bringing these things to mind to bring conviction. Third, also notice Judah's intervention. Does that sound familiar? Look at verse 8. And Judah said to his father, Send the boy with me, and, I'll, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you also and our little ones. He makes himself a pledge of safety to him. Back in chapter 37, Judah's the one who intervenes with the plan to, to sell Joseph instead of letting him die. Here, Judah intervenes on behalf of Benjamin. Yet another reminder. And then fourth and finally, another reminder of their sin. The payment, this gift that, God, that Israel prepares to bring back would have reminded them of selling their brother Joseph. Verse 11 says, Their father Israel said to them, If we must... Be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey and a little gum and myrrh and pistachio nuts and almonds. Basically high-end trail mix, right? Bring this back and then take double the money and carry it with you. So Jacob agrees to send Benjamin with his sons, but he's saying, I'm not going to send you empty-handed. We're going to send him a gift, which includes gum, Balm and myrrh and the high-end trail mix, right? That's the very thing, gum, balm, myrrh, the very thing the merchants who purchased Joseph 
were carrying to Egypt in chapter 37. It would have reminded them. What's more, the word for money in verse 12 is the same word to describe the silver that the brothers received for selling their brother Joseph in chapter 43. They are being convicted of their sin from all of those years ago. Friends, the lesson's clear. We cannot hide from our sin, can we? Whether it was 20 years ago or this morning, whether it was someplace far away or right where you are, God knows. That, that Las Vegas advertising slogan, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, a total lie before the living God. What happened in Haran in chapter 37 did not stay, or, or Dothan rather, did not stay in Dothan for these brothers. They're being haunted by their sin. Moses later declares to the people, Numbers 32, 23, your sin will find you out. Hebrews 4, 13 says, and no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Nothing can be hidden from God. And God is bringing back this sin to bring about conviction. And friends, this is a good thing. Conviction of sin is a sign of of God's love for his people. G.I. Packer defines conviction this way. He says, to be convicted of sin means not just to feel that one is an all-around flop, that's very British, but to realize that one has offended God, flouted his authority, defied him, gone against him, and put oneself in the wrong with him. Brothers haven't realized that yet, but that's what God is doing here. And friends, the reason this is so important is because we cannot begin to comprehend mercy unless we first comprehend our sinfulness. That's what conviction is, a comprehension of our sinfulness. And it's a sign of his pursuit of you and I in order to draw us in to his mercy. So when you and I experience this, when we experience the weightiness of, of of the wrong that we've done against God and others, don't do what the enemy in our hearts and the culture tempts us to do. Don't say, oh, it's no big deal. I'm going to suppress it. Don't, Don't try and bury it like the brothers did and say, oh, the past is past and just hope it goes away. Don't try to atone for it. Oh, I need I need to be better to make up for my sin. Instead, Cry out to God for mercy. We see that this conviction is met with mercy in verse 14 in a a surprising way. The plan to return to Egypt has been agreed upon. They're going to send the gift. They're going to send Benjamin. Double the money. And then Jacob gives them this send-off in verse 14. He says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So in an immediate sense, do you see what what Jacob is doing here? He's pleading for protection for their return to Egypt. He's pleading that Benjamin comes back, that Simeon, who was left there, comes back. But in a deeper sense, God is telling the brothers of their greatest need. They don't just need traveling mercies. They need the mercy of God to cover their sinfulness. And notice, Jacob's declaration emphasizes 
two key aspects of God's character that are essential for convicted sinners. His might and his mercy. May God Almighty grant you mercy. God Almighty, El Shaddai. Friends, who can stand against the power of God Almighty? Surely not sinners like these guys. Surely not sinners like you and me. Who can, who can properly deal with this conviction of sin and guilt and shame that they're starting to feel? Surely we have no power on our own to do so. God Almighty can. El Shaddai. Yet notice, he doesn't just call him God Almighty. He is not just mighty. He's also filled with mercy. His might says he can deal with your sin. He's all-powerful. His mercy said he lovingly longs to deal with your sin that you might be restored to right relationship with him. Both of those are essential for understanding who God is as we're under the weight of conviction. We need a God of might who can deal with our sin, and we need a God of mercy who wants to lovingly deal with our sin. See, friends, this is what happens when we allow conviction to lead us to Jesus in faith, to lead us to confession and repentance instead of ignoring it. What happens? God Almighty grants mercy through Christ our Savior. And I love this. This is just a side note. But it's a reminder that these brothers like us are works in progress. Because do you remember what happened in chapter 38? We got a very strange detour from the Joseph story to look at this man, Judah, who lived completely selfishly who put up a, a, a pledge of some of his materials so that he could visit a, a prostitute, who completely despised a woman in need of mercy. Yet now, 20 years later, Judah is the one who pledges himself for his brother Benjamin. We're seeing change as God is convicting these men and leading them to his mercy. So that's number one. Conviction of sin is met with mercy. As we read on, now, these brothers aren't quite ready to fully uh, receive this mercy just yet. So they're still very fearful, as you can imagine. So as we read on, we see their fear of judgment is met with peace. Look at verse 15 again. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin. And they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his, the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph told them and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time, chapter 42, that were brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys." So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house. So the brothers arrive in Egypt and they stand before Joseph, but then Joseph departs and they're really dealing with this Egyptian steward of Joseph's household. He's this messenger for Joseph. And he brings them in for a meal at Joseph's request, but the brothers are terrified. Why are they terrified? Well, they fear that Joseph is, a, is about to drop the hammer of judgment on them for stealing the money. 
which they didn't do. Remember, they paid for food on their first trip. They brought money, paid for the food. Then, without them knowing, Joseph arranged for that money to be put back in their sacks. So when they saw it later, the money was still there. So they think that he thinks that they stole. And now he's saying he's bringing us in to judge us. And notice the specific fears in verse 18. We're brought in so that he may assault us, fall upon us, make us servants, and seize our donkeys. Do you hear that? They're, they're afraid of assault, enslavement, and theft. Does that remind you of anything? When they assaulted their brother? When they sold him into slavery? When they stole his coat? Their thought is, God is returning our sin upon us. Just as we assaulted and enslaved our brother, so we too will be assaulted and enslaved. They're fearful that they're going to get what they deserve. And in their fear, they go to the steward of the house and they plead their case. Verse 20. Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks. And there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. And we've brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. Now, if you're following the whole story and you know about these brothers, this may be the part in the movie where you just want the hammer of justice to drop. You're like, who cares whether or not they took the money? Do you know? That's the least of their sins, if you know about these guys. Drop the hammer. Who, they don't need forgiveness. They don't need grace. They're guilty. They, they need condemnation. And that's what they're thinking is coming. But that's not what happens. Do you, do you know why it's not what happens? It's because Joseph is not seeking revenge, but restoration. That's his long-term goal. So instead, Joseph's steward responds at verse 23. Listen to what he says. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had, give, and when he had given their donkeys fodder. We're going to stop mid-sentence there. So just as Jacob emphasized God's character, might, and mercy, so now this unknown Egyptian steward is also emphasizing God's character to them. And he tells them of God's peace and providence. He says in Hebrew, peace be to you. He meets their fears of judgment with a greeting that belongs to God's covenant people. May God's peace, his shalom, his completeness and wholeness be upon you. You have no reason to fear. Now, an, an Egyptian pagan is the most unlikely messenger of God's peace for these brothers. You know what that means? I think this is so important to notice. That means that Joseph has been a good missionary in Egypt, right? How else would this man know about Yahweh? Apparently, he's training up those around him in the ways of the one true God. This is a wonderful little sort of miniature lesson for us in mission. Joseph was running the world. He was a busy man. He had a lot to do, yet he still prioritized pointing others to the one true God. He still prioritized the mission. Friends, you and I, wherever we are in our lives, we are, as Christians, missionaries and disciple makers. 
doesn't matter what life stage you're in. doesn't matter what job you're in. It doesn't matter uh, uh, geographically where you are located. And Joseph models that for us here. So much so that this servant speaks the word of peace of the one true God to these fearful brothers. But notice also he recognizes God's providence. He says, your God and the God of your father has put the treasure in your sacks. God did this. Now, of course, the steward and Joseph did this, and the steward knows this. He's saying, we know we put the money back in your sacks, but you hear his, his good theology of God's providence. He's saying, yes, we did this, but I want you to know, ultimately, the cause of all things is the one true God. And God is somehow providentially working here. Therefore, you have no reason to fear. In other words, the hound of heaven is at work. The steward also shows us another lesson on how to minister to others who are fearful and anxious. I just love his response. It's so simple. We don't know who this person is, but he speaks both grace and truth. You see that peace be to you, and God is providentially working. He meets their fears with the word of God's peace, and he meets their anxieties with the word of God's providence. This man is like Proverbs 25, 25, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, which is true for all of us. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Friend, if you are a Christian, you are a minister of peace. And you have the responsibility and the privilege both of bringing words of peace to your fearful and anxious brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And friend, if you're on the other end of that right now, if you're saying, I don't feel like a minister, but I'm certainly anxious and fearful, and who of us isn't at times, look around you. You have people, fellow ministers, who are to speak peace to you in your anxieties and your fears. Don't, don't keep those in. Speak up. Ask for help that you may be met with God's shalom. But there's also a lesson for us here in the brothers' fear as they approach Joseph's house. We should ask ourselves, friends, what fears keep us from coming to God in our time of need? The brothers feared that Joseph, they feared Joseph, so they're reluctant to, to come to him. They expected judgment, but Joseph's intent was peace. So they're anxiously wondering, what's the catch here? And we'll see it in a moment. They're still fearful when they, they stand before Joseph. They're thinking there's some sort of string attached to all this kindness and peace. And friends, don't we do that with God? We, we know the claims of God's love. We know the claims of God's grace and peace for repentant sinners. But we, we wonder, have I exhausted God's mercy as I struggle with this sin? Can I, can I come to an end of his love and we begin to doubt him? Or we say we believe in his grace and peace, but in the back of our minds, we're wondering, is he sometimes just going to drop the hammer of judgment on us? And when that happens, our prayers are few and far between. Or, or if we do pray, we don't pour out our hearts to him because we don't trust him with our troubles. You don't trust someone that you're fearful of. Imagine a teenager who is out with friends and she gets into some sort of serious trouble. 
and she needs help. If that teenager is scared of her father, she will say, I messed up. Please don't call my dad. Right? He's a harsh man. Terrified. Call somebody else. But if she knows her father to be loving and caring, what will she say? Instead, I messed up. I have to call my dad. You see the difference? Christian, which of those ways best describes the way you view your heavenly father? And I I pray it's the latter for us. When we come to him in our fears, even when we know we deserve just judgment when we're convicted of our sins, we can be confident through Christ that we'll be met with his peace. For those who believe, this is a promise for you. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon That's how God meets repentant sinners under the weight of conviction. John 6, 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. This is such an important phrase. Fear has to do with punishment. And Christian, do you know why you don't have to fear punishment? Because Jesus has taken the punishment upon himself on the cross. No more punishment for you. We don't need to fear judgment when we humbly come to him under conviction. We have this promise that through Christ he offers us peace. And then third and finally, we see an attempt to appease is met with favor. So as we move on, we come face to face with Joseph. The brothers are are finally having this meeting. They still think there's a string attached here. They think there's a plan to bring judgment against them. And before their meeting, they're preparing this gift they brought with them. Remember that high-end trail mix? They're like, this is it. We're getting our gift together. Verse 25, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard They should eat bread there. Now, here's what I'm going to submit to you. This would have been, yes, a custom form of hospitality, bringing a gift. But I think there's more going on here. Because do you remember their their planning back home? These men, Jacob, they're all fearful and anxious about going back to Egypt and standing before this man that they don't yet know to be Joseph. Will he judge us? Will he keep Benjamin like he did with Simeon, which would destroy their father? So this is more than just a housewarming gift. This is an attempt to appease a man who they think is out to get him. We're going to give him this gift, hopefully sort of pacify, appease him, and so he's kind to us. And how does Joseph respond? They bring this gift. They got the, I don't know, maybe a gift basket. They've got some ribbons on it, some pistachios and almonds, high-end trail mix, and they bring it to Joseph. And, And what's the response? Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And what did he do? He inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he alive? 
They said, your servant, our father, is well. He's alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. The gift is completely ignored. They come in and they bow down for the second time. And they bow down again for the third time, just as God prophesied through Joseph's dream. And they think, we're going to appease this man who's angry with us. And his first concern is their welfare. Right? He, he asks about their welfare, then their fa- his father Jacob. It's as if he says, hey, listen, um, thank you for the high-end trail mix. Really, very thoughtful of you. I, I'm in charge of the world. I don't know if you knew that. So I can get all the trail mix I need. I don't really care about your pistachios and almonds and M&Ms and whatever else is in there. I care about you. Total ign- totally ignores the gift. And I think this is just another glimpse of Joseph's intentions for his brothers, which is another glimpse of Christ's intentions for us. They're fearful. He wants restoration. They're expecting judgment. He wants peace. They're trying to appease him, and he wants to show them favor. And we see more of Joseph's heart on display as he's reunited with his his brother Benjamin, the only other son of his mother Rachel. Verse 29, he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself said, serve the food. So he serves them. Verse 32, they served him by himself and them by themselves. Benjamin and the brothers separated. And the Egyptians who ate uh, with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews. For that's an abomination to Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. That's how how the passage ends. There's two things happening here. So first, Joseph is testing his brothers. You see that? He's, he's, he still wants to see if they've changed. So he puts Benjamin in the seat of prominence, and he gives him five times more food. And I'm like, how old is this kid, right? How much food can he eat? But five times more food than the other brothers. Will they look upon Benjamin with jealousy? That's the test. Will they look upon my little brother with jealousy just as they did with me? He's giving them that opportunity. But there's more going on here. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says, the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible, every story whispers Jesus' names. I I think this portion doesn't just whisper the name of Jesus, it it shouts it. Do you see that? A man who was despised by his brothers and thrown into a pit has now risen to prominence. All people are coming to him for provision. And the fearful culprits try to pay him back. They try to appease him, but he doesn't need payment. Instead, he's concerned about their welfare. Instead, he prepares a feast. Instead, he throws a party, and they look at each other with amazement, and they feast with joy. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Joseph's brother's sin led to Joseph's destruction all those years ago. Our sin placed Christ upon the cross for his destruction. Joseph was exalted in Egypt to serve the world through famine. Christ was resurrected and ascended that all who come to him may have life. Joseph pursued his brothers through testing to see the genuineness of their change and their conviction. Christ, the hound of heaven, pursues us that we may sense the weight of our sin and the need of his mercy. The brothers attempted to appease Joseph with payment. And friends, we attempt to appease the living God all the time with our own works of righteousness. Brothers are met with a feast and amazement and joy and merriment. And friends, when we come to Christ for the first time for salvation or again and again and again for sanctification, for spiritual growth, when we say to the hound of heaven, I am him whom thou seekest, we're welcomed into the feast. We're welcomed to dine with him. Now these brothers have yet to recognize this is is Joseph. Their, their reconciliation is yet to come in chapter 45. But the good news for us is we have the full gospel story. We know the true and greater Joseph. We don't have to wait. He is pursuing you, convicting you of sin, bringing your fears to light, not to destroy you, but to give you mercy, peace, and favor. The question is, will we receive his mercy and our conviction? Will we allow our fears to be quelled by his peace? That our relationship both with God and also with others may be restored? And will we lay down all of our attempts to appease and simply receive the favor and grace and love of the one who was once our enemy but is now our reconciled brother, Jesus Christ? May it be so. That's our prayer this morning. Let's pray together.